What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan with my co-host Dave Martin Swagger. What's going on, man? Hey, dog. How's it going? You hear about that Robert Pattinson casting? Our guy? <laughs> more more your guy than our, our guy, uh, I, I would say. Our guy? He is great. You know, we talked to, we reviewed Good Time, you reviewed High Life. He's been on a bit of a heater in terms of his roles. It seems like a movie with uh, Willem Dafoe. It's getting a lot of buzz at con right now. The Lighthouse. And we missed talking about this last week. So I wanted to get your thoughts. Big Robert Pattinson fan, can he play Bruce Wayne slash Batman effectively? Uh, yeah. Are you sure about that? Of course he can. Yeah, why the fuck not? The Twilight guy? Oh, yeah, the Twilight guy, of course. Uh, no, nah, he's, he's one of the best actors we've had. He's made so many cool interesting choices has always done well in all these different roles he's taken the past 10 years or so and especially the last five where he's just been on heater after heater as you said so it's just very exciting it's very inspired casting you know all the names that were thrown out there both unknowns relatively and household names you want someone that you feel like can bring something and like pattinson i feel like can bring all kinds of things he's shown physicality in the rover he's shown a weird character actor sense in lost city of z manic energy in good time he can do anything so i think really if matt reeves is up to the task as we expect him to be in terms of writing and crafting this specific batman story i think pattinson's a fantastic choice to do whatever he's asked to do because i disbelieve in that talent and because we're seeing it manifest every year and the lighthouse is getting rave reviews at a con so again unsurprising he's in another good movie and is in it, is good in it so why would uh, the batman be different batman's a, a tough role and, and people are really critical of the casting for it. i mean just like anything that we don't like nowadays there's a petition to change the casting of robert pattinson right. by dc fans i actually really like the casting i'm more fascinated by them picking someone pattinson's age though pattinson i think will be great and i have no doubt he'll be interesting but I'm assuming this means that they're going to make this more of a younger Batman. I mean, Pattinson, I believe, is 33 right now, probably be about 35 when the movie uh, is released. I'm guessing it's about two years out at this point, if they were just getting... Yeah, it has a date, 21. I mean, that that's a pretty young Bruce Wayne, so I'm fascinated to see where they go with that and how that impacts the story. Yeah, and like at the same time though, he's not like it's not like he's like Tom Holland age or anything. Right. DC's really just they're they're just kind of working movie to movie right now and just focusing on making the first movie good and the next movie good and not really worrying about like the the thirty year plan or anything the way Marvel works. So I think Pattinson's age probably wasn't really much of a factor. They were just trying to get somebody good mm-hmm. and get a good fit for the director and stuff. So, but I mean, either way, remember when people were really mad when Heath Ledger was cast as the Joker because he he wasn't known for uh anything serious at the time uh, it's just uh, apart from like brokeback mountain it's, it's the same it's the same concept regarding the the petition people just and, and frankly i mean do any of the people that are making these petitions these fans are, have they watched any of the movies that he's been good in recently uh highly un- unlikely right so they only know him as edward probably i'm also interested to see who they cast as catwoman and the penguin who are identified as as the villains in this upcoming film so Josh Gad is uh, rumored to be the Penguin. He's like teased it a lot. Hasn't been announced though. That'd be interesting. Yeah, I I think I'm a little bit more interested in Catwoman because Penguin doesn't really intrigue me as much. But Catwoman, very intriguing, especially because there's always like that Mm -hmm. kind of like interplay of like a relationship of sorts with Batman or at least a tension there in their relationship. So Mm -hmm. a lot to be talking about and we'll be keeping you up to date with that. But we're going to start off with some TV today. 
And if you're watching and you've seen Dave talking, you can see we're going to be talking about Catch-22, the miniseries from Hulu, produced and one episode directed by George Clooney. Six episodes starring Charlie Abbott playing John Yosarian, also known as Yo-Yo in the show and Air Force. It's Christopher Abbott, not Charlie Abbott. Oh, Christopher Abbott. Sorry. Yeah. Of girls fame. I wrote down the wrong name, so that that's on me. <laughs> He's play, he plays an Air Force bombardier who is trying to finish his missions and get out of the army. He's furious. People are trying to kill him, but more that the army keeps raising the number of missions that he needs to complete before he can actually get out. How would you describe this? Is this a drama? Is this a comedy? A little bit of both? Yeah, well, I think the whole whole lens you discuss the this miniseries really depends on what you're uh, viewing it as. Are you viewing it as an adaptation of the famous Joseph Heller novel, or are you just viewing it as a miniseries about soldiers in World War II? The novel, uh, which I haven't read, but it has, was very notorious and, and famous for being a bit of a, a, a satire, a, a, a lot of dark humor, uh, and just kind of just making fun of the whole enterprise of war and... Uh, Yo-Yo's character is kind of just fighting to maintain his his sanity, his his sense of self, while trying to protect his literal life. And that humor that's so famous and and well liked in the book might come and go in this miniseries. So if you're looking for that, it might not be delivering it to you. But if you're just viewing the miniseries as a World War II story, I think it's honestly an even simpler thing to analyze and that's again it's basically what i was doing given that i hadn't actually read the book but yeah i think it there's definitely like a whimsy whimsy to it the, the, this miniseries and it i mean the high production values stand out the big name actors stand out but it's not just a it's not just a war story or at least it's not trying to be just one whether it's effective at being more than just a war story i guess is we'll talk about but I mean, how did you view it? Because it has a real sense of style and like gravitas to it. I probably would view this more as like a dark comedy in in a lot of ways. And that, even though it it touches on some really uh, deep and dark and thoughtful themes, <clears throat> I think where I found myself enjoying this the most were the points where they were doing fun things, like especially when plot was being driven by Yo Yo's interactions with the other people within the the trooper the his division i guess it is uh specifically like milo played by daniel yes. david stewart uh electric on screen and just watching them go about was fantastic especially the scene with i think it was like the saudi like businessman or whatever where they had to kind of like bullshit with him i i really loved that scene but the interplay he had with all the other men i thought was was great kyle chandler and hugh laurie and george clooney you know popping out of this at different points and all are fantastic in different ways. But in terms of how I saw the miniseries, I think it, it kind of starts to spiral around the, the end of the third episode into the fourth. You know, especially there's uh, a tragedy that happens on the base that leads to the death of two of the men in the troop. I, I won't spoil it too much, but that kind of starts to drive this downward spiral of uh, Yo-Yo trying to get out of the, the army, you know, them blocking him in several different ways. Uh, every time he thinks he's about to finally get his reprieve, they they change the bar or something goes wrong. And it, it finally ends up with him just kind of like hitting rock bottom in this. And it really is like a tragedy in a lot of senses. But where I think the miniseries strives the most is when it adds the levity to it. Yeah. And I mean, Milo's character just being a blatant war profiteer. Right. 
is really re- well regarded character from the book, but I think he's very effective in in the miniseries as well. Just because he he always has a smile on his face, he's always pleasing everyone he meets. Yet if you just open you know the hood for what his enterprise is, the syndicate, this you know it, it's 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 pretty nasty stuff. Yeah. And meanwhile, Yo Yo obviously is the driving force as the protagonist. His reluctance to continue to have a good attitude about fighting the way some of his uh, uh, squad mates do. You know, I think that, that that that's supposed to be communicated as like he his interest in self-preservation is based on the uh, lack of uh, importance he feels in these missions. And he just feels like he's being sent off to eventually die for no reason. Yeah, I don't know if that's communicated well enough and that it's not coming off just as him being like a coward. Like I, I was having a, it just sounded sometimes it just felt like he was just kind of like bitching out, and it, it it didn't didn't it didn't present Yo Yo as like this thinker of like the human condition and like the ethics of upping these mission counts. It never it never felt like I tr- totally examined that. Uh, at least Yo Yo never communicated that. So I kind of like struggled sometimes with him just this bitching about his situation that he really had no control over as he found out yeah i i agree i don't know if that was always effectively communicated i do think it gets a little bit better as the the series goes on in ways um especially the the last episode when he you know their, their ship gets hit and one of the the new men in, in their division and on, on the plane is killed um and there's this the sense of, of like okay like I'm, I'm gonna help you get through this like i'm gonna save you and then he finds out that the injury to the person is much worse and he actually like is like faced with like this thing that he feels responsible for in a lot of ways and then, then he refuses to wear his his uniform ever again because of uh, what happened and how he's feeling about it and i feel like at that point it starts to be communicated a little bit more effectively but yeah i don't know if christopher abbott um ever really makes yo-yo into this person who is like this very like this i don't know if his thoughtfulness is communicated i think they try to do that with the flashback scenes with marion in different ways but Mm. i don't know if that's always done like you said effectively well and like the whole dark comic tone that it's the story supposed to have yo-yo never seems to get any of the jokes he's around Mm. like like the catch the titular catch-22 premise uh you know with the insanity and whatnot apparently that's like this hilarious back and forth in the book and it was kind of just like rushed and it's said and kind of forgotten mm-hmm. on the show and while i still you know i thought i still you know again not having read it like learning it i still thought that worked but it just seemed like it, it was it was it was missing something for and like back to the humor i mean like the whole the whole major major bit is funny but again, it's apparently it's much funnier in the book, whereas Lewis Pullman, who's Bill Pullman's son, who's playing Major Major, he, I don't know, so it just kind of felt like sometimes he was in a different show because he was like one of the only ones that was just kind of being a doof. Right. Whereas the only other stuff that was really hammy was like Kyle Chandler's uh, <laughs> Colonel character, who is very over the top, obviously, but in a different way. I, I just didn't know if like the, the blatant moments for humor and for making everything seem like a farce i just don't know if that really 
it didn't come up that much apart from Milo, who again we thought worked well. Definitely, I think I agree with you on, on it not working as well as they were hoping it would. I still think the series was very enjoyable, and you mentioned the style of it. It's like almost shot through this like sepia tone lens in a lot of ways. It really gives you that like old timey mm-hmm. feel, and I think the like the costumes in this and like the the way that they they shoot like the setting and everything is really well done and really kind of gives you a sense of place and time which is is a huge testament to the show but yeah i think the acting definitely left a little bit to be desired for sure and the writing obviously as well i mean they did shoot this in italy uh, it was quite expensive as 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 it looks and i think they used just two b25 bombers and they had to like redo shots and, and rework shots all the time but they only, they only actually had two planes the whole time, which is uh, pretty pretty fascinating, having them figure all that out. But yeah, I mean, like I feel like the bookheads will definitely like this a lot more than the uh, 1970 film with Alan Arkin and John Voight and Orson Welles, because I know that was not very well received. And I think adapting this into a movie, it, you just need the, you need more time with all these supporting characters to really dive in and really understand all the over the topness and ridiculousness of all the characters in the whole situation i feel like a movie just isn't enough time mm-hmm. no i agree for sure so i i still a big, big fan i mean again there's there's i think if you're if you separate it from its source material and just review it for what it is it's it's uh very very enjoyable something else i think we both really enjoyed fleabag season two phoebe waller bridge i gotta write this time <laughs> plays fleabag wrote produced this show you know it's been what's three years since the first season came out really highly regarded first season kind of flew under the radar because it was it's a british show came to amazon but i think not as many people were really aware of it and then season two came out and pretty much every tv critic out there or fan of tv that was aware of the show was like hey fleabag season two can't wait gotta watch it finally on amazon we were able to watch it Season two, give me your thoughts on season one and then kind of how did you feel about season two compar- comparatively? Right. Yeah. Well, I think with season one, it it immediately grabs you as, I mean, obviously it's a British show, but it's like a very unique British show. And obviously the, what stands out the most is that a flea bag breaks the fourth wall pretty routinely, Constantly. directly looks in the camera mm-hmm. and there's these hammer lines, but the payoff, the, the punch lines are not what you expect. The first notable one is about anal sex, if I remember mm-hmm. right. And it's just this really funny shit. And you're like, all right, well, this is going to be like maybe like a, a dark comedy of sorts about this bad girl. Uh, we've seen this in Girls. We've seen this in lots of stuff. Right? Cool. That'll be good. Uh, charismatic performer, good writer. But then you realize, oh, wait, there's actually a lot more going on in this show. And it's about, you know, examining uh, like the walls you put up in your relationships and whole whole mess of themes, really. Yeah. But it immediately grabs your attention for the how the storytelling is different. And season two manages to kind of up that ante in a uh, awesome way, unexpected way. But I mean, see, the reason season two is so on everyone's radar at this time around is you know since between one and two, Phoebe Waller Bridge developed Killing Eve mm-hmm. and did season one as a showrunner, was a voice in Solo, and is now one of the co-writers on Bond Twenty Five. Kind of a big fucking deal. <laughs> Yeah, and she helped uh, write and produce on Crashing, which was an HBO show. I actually recently had its final season wrap up, or it was cut short, uh, canceled. Yep. But she's uh, obviously a rising voice in creative fields, TV fields, movie fields. Season one for me, what, what I think you know, you, you hit on many of the great points. I think what also stood out was just how 
endearing in and how realistic she's able to make almost every character in the show in different ways i mean i think the only character i really absolutely despise in season one is claire's husband yeah. <laughs> who's just he's the worst That's the point yeah he, you're supposed to dislike him even olivia coleman's godmother who i think could be detestable in a lot of times in the show i think he is is a more fleshed out character than you see in a lot of shows and she there's not really a lot of wasted space like it's these are 22 24 minute episodes and she's doing a lot to really build out this world and make all these characters feel realized and i think she actually continues that into season two in a really wonderful way you know andrew scott who plays the priest in season two um is just a wonderful addition that's a clear standout him and uh, waller bridge have amazing chemistry on screen together and even though he gets a lot of time in season two he never feels like he's there too much i'm actually really interested to learn more about him he feels like a real person in a lot of ways too i think that that's probably the part about the show i like the most you know even a character like claire who is very like flat and cold a lot of the time and takes herself very seriously i found myself loving and hating her with the with (laughs) fleabag throughout the show and like my emotions towards claire were up and down i think that's just a testament to how well written and developed that this idea is yeah for sure and you know, it, it, it's actually kind of funny. This like Olivia Coleman's character is just the godmother, yeah, and Phoebe Waller Bridge is just Fleabag. Like, there's no name there, yep. right? And like in season two, we just have the priest yeah. and the lawyer guy is literally called hot misogynist, like <laughs> on the call sheet. Yep, and uh, the, the loan officer is just loan officer. <laughs> and I think what that communicates it, it continues with the storytelling is everything is through the lens of how Fleabag perceives everything. Mm-hmm. And that also includes, obviously, the camera. Like, we're supposed to be, like, there watching it. And season two, having the priest see when Fleabag like, looks at the camera or talks to it, then eventually starts hearing what she says, is, is just a fascinating way to keep that going. And then the way this show ends, and, like, it, this is going to be the last Fle- well, Fleabag for a very long time. Uh, she says the last season, could that could change, but for a while anyway. And having the camera not follow Fleabag she walks away and having Fleabag like wave from afar like it is it's really unique mm-hmm. way to communicate like the viewer's relationship with what they're watching yeah while also communicating the protagonist's view of everything that we're watching happen which is really cool it, it's uh, I agree I think it's really cool and that's actually highlighted really well in I think it was episode three when she goes to visit the the therapist or the counselor that the father pays for a session. Shaw. Yes. Killing Eve. Awesome. But when when she asks, like, oh, do you have any friends that you talk to? And she says no at first. And then, like, later on, she comes back to this, like, oh, actually, no, I do have friends I talk to. And then she, like, wink, she, like, looks over at the camera. She might even give it a wink. And it's like, oh, she's, like, nodding to you as, like, this, these are the friends she's developed for herself to, like, cope with mm-hmm. this. And obviously, it relates back to, like, her, her guilt and her trauma and her feelings around what happened with Boo prior mm-hmm. and kind of what is kicking off her journey in these two seasons and what she's ultimately dealing with but it's it's just really really smart really well done and it's such a delight to get through i almost feel like a bit cheated that there's only 12 episodes in total because this is a show i would like to spend a lot more time in that's a that's british shows for especially british comedies they're usually usually tight but i mean the dialogue too because Mm -hmm. phoebe waller bridge is feels like a writer first even though she's a awesome performer the dialogue is seems is very realistic 
and it's like none of the jokes ever feel forced like everything just feels so natural throughout time and you really understand the characters and all their lines feel like they would be coming from you know who they're coming from everything feels feels right and even someone like claire's husband who is definitely more of a high energy dick as far as dicks go it it, it lands well and i mean season two for me like immediately just grabbed my eye because the first episode that like classic dinner gone wrong scene yeah. with the family everyone's just on 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 edge the whole time and every every line has so much uh context uh, under the surface yeah. you know uh, it, it's great and actually they introduce the priest in such a really smart way and having i think andrew scott's really good in the role but having him have his own arc in the season and then the way it ends which we probably didn't didn't expect it to end that mm-hmm. way it's really lovely yeah absolutely it I think the like the the like the subtle things that they did really well in season two that I think actually elevated the show from season one. So while Waller Bridge has those moments where she looks at the camera and she like gives a wink or adds a comment, and that kind of adds a lot of context about her character. When Andrew starts to like notice that, and that adds a whole other element to like what Fleabag is going through, what she's experiencing, her different feelings around it. It's really like the idea of like being seen by somebody and probably for the first time in Fleabag's life because while she's kind of like the linchpin of her family and you see that in the episode where you know I think it's the final episode where like the father and the godmother are getting married and she's kind of the one holding everything together in a lot of ways she's also the one that people just see as like the damaged one the one who is always making a scene always making things about her when in a lot of ways it's no more miscarriages (laughs) right exactly and in, in a lot of ways, she developed that tendency because of the tragedy in her family with her mom dying, you know, and it's it's just su- such a layered show in so many ways. And it makes you really think about family relationships in, I think, ways that other shows don't necessarily um, always get to. And I, I mean, if you weren't already uh, buying in on Phoebe Waller-Bridge, uh, you really need to start because I have a feeling <laughs> we're going to be talking about her for a really long time. Yeah, for sure. Also, shout out Andrew Scott, who I swear looks like Shea Wiggum's younger brother. <laughs> it's a good call. It's a good call. I actually didn't realize he was uh, Moriarty on Sherlock. Yeah. That's where he got he got famous. Also, he's an openly gay actor playing a non-gay character. It can be done. Interesting. Normalize that some more. <laughs> also, the best, I think, my favorite bit in the whole whole season, which only happens twice, I think, was the whole thing where the painting falls down when God's referenced yeah. or God's on the mind? It's hilarious. I like audibly laughed aloud both times. <laughs> yeah, were, were there any like moments or scenes that really stood out to you from either season? The whole dinner episode, yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I actually really liked the episode at um, Claire's work, mm-hmm. like work party, work event thing with the with the, with the awards and the and then having that up. That, that, that scene afterwards at the bar with the with the winner yes. was really good. I mean, heck, the, the the statue, yes, the voluptuous statue that gets stolen and returned and regifted and all that uh, is another good bit. And the kind of where that statue goes or who has it kind of represents, I think, the Fleabag's status at the time. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I, I mean, the, the show always grabs your attention because at any any given point, if you look away, you could miss a look at the camera mm-hmm. you know and like then you just you miss the, the the punch of the scene so you have to pay attention the whole yeah. time uh, you know w- when i think about the show probably the episode that comes to mind most is actually from season one which is the silent retreat that they go to and 
<laughs> I just found that episode so funny and just so like I don't know. There's so many moments from it. I remember, um, like when she when she sneaks up on the guy screaming at the female mannequin, like just hilarious. Like I don't know the whole thing. And th- but then the conversation. I definitely turned my TV down <laughs> when like slut was being yelled like 50 times in like 10 minute period. Hilarious. And then afterwards, the the conversation she has with the loan manager is just so like, I don't know. It's so like, intimate, but also like opens your eyes about who he is and like it makes his like decisions and what he like goes and what he's going through feel so real it's just like i feel like that embodies what this show does really well um on a great level i also just that that final episode where they're at the the father and godmother's house and claire begs the husband to leave her and just everything going on there this this uh what, what was it like oboe or whatever the the weird it was a bassoon, bassoon. yeah his his the biggest wind instrument <laughs> That that song was called "Where's Claire?" Just like so many. <laughs> Where's Claire? So many different funny things. The the priest giving that speech, love. It's it's terrible. It's it's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah, D- delight of a show. So too bad there's not gonna be more, but definitely check it out on Amazon. Why don't we move on to what happens in the shadows? What happens? What we do in the shadows? The Taiko Waititi adaptation from his uh, film back in what early 2010s 2014 I think 2014 kind of recent yeah Eh, five years half a decade crazy and into a a 10 episode tv show so we uh, got Jermaine Clement the helm of this thing Flay the Concords you know we also in the original movie yes and we talked about the we talked about this as an anticipated TV show for the year, something we were looking forward to. We haven't really talked about it much on the pod. What was your overall thoughts on, on this season and just kind of, I think, this this brand of humor in whole? Yeah, I think right away you either get on board or you're not going to really vibe with it because it, the show doesn't really change throughout the season. It's kind of the same thing the whole time. Mm-hmm. But I think it's actually just, it's kind of like really well realized in terms of what they're trying to do with these vampires living in the real world and fish out of story fish out of water story tropes and whatnot so if you like that and like the for the pilot like kind of hooks you then all the ridiculous things they do throughout the season will be amusing to you and that's where i was i actually thought it was, it was quite funny because it's a it's a short show it's like 20 something minute episodes you know it's it's pretty light but also just unique enough that i think it, it's it's pretty pleasurable what about you I agree that the show doesn't change much throughout. However, I found myself a lot more in the middle. There were some episodes where I didn't really find myself grabbed too much, but there are others where I was all in. Like, what was it? The, where the, yeah. the council scene, the I think it was, council. or the, the council episode, I thought... Dark greetings. Like, hilarious. And seeing... <laughs> seeing all you know tilda swinton pop up danny trejo uh trejo yep. um all of, like those different Wesley people snipes. Pop up as being on the council was just met as fuck yes just like hilarious uh taiko yeah. was also in there dave bautista was one of the imprisoned people like it, paul rubens i thought like those episodes or or when nick kroll uh was in the, the nightclub episode i thought manhattan those yes i thought those people injected an energy into it that the show kind of sometimes could fall into this very, um, I don't know, the same lull, so to speak, that I think lost me at times. But overall, I thought that this was a really fun first season, and I'm looking forward to them doing more. You know, uh, 
the orgy episode is probably my favorite of the season though and that didn't really have many like guest people in it kind of con- contrast to what i'm saying but i just felt like matt barry in that one got to yeah. kind of shine more uh whereas i feel like Kayvon uh novak really carried a lot more of the funny moments for me early in the season him and guillermo had a great chemistry together mm-hmm. um and i really liked that matt barry got a chance to really like show off in that one yeah I, honestly i thought matt, matt barry had lots of lots of funny funny line one-liners throughout the season but i was actually kind of un- unexpectedly um mark prost who plays uh colin robinson mm-hmm. the uh the daywalker the, the energy, energy vampire. vampire yeah and then he gets like a bottle episode of sorts early in the season at his office mm-hmm. whenever he's whenever he's uh and it's just like lots of cool physical comedy because he can't fly he can't turn into a bat he can be out in the day, all that stuff. So because he's different than the other vampires and uh, looks and dresses like a normal person, it's just, it's just easy jokes. Um, Doug Jones is the Baron. Obviously, Doug Jones is playing a character in heavy makeup and prosthetics. Shocker there. I was happy the Baron didn't last throughout the whole season. Me too. Just because, I don't know, I, I, he was like he was like almost like too serious mm-hmm. for the rest of the show. And yes, they were like kind of making fun of him throughout, but... I was kind of happy he uh, had his, his 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 arc, I guess, if you could call it that. I do love um, the... Did you like... Uh, before you move on from the Baron, I do love his arrival when he just, like, comes out of the, <laughs> the coffin and just immediately, like, sucks all the blood out of their, like, like whatever that was, like, familiar or keeper or whatever it was. Familiar. Just, just destroys yeah. her, dude. It's hilarious. Like, blood is... And then he goes her. back to sleep in, like, five minutes. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Uh, what were you gonna say though? Did you like that? Like, there's like a documentary crew filming it, and it's there's a lot like like Novak often will look at the camera mm-hmm. and just give it a nod. Obviously, it's not like flea bag level, like uh, fourth wall breaking, but because like they even have like confessional scenes where they're talking to the camera and talking about stuff, uh, I think it just kind of helped uh, frame the humor and absurdity of everything. So, I mean, did you like that? Yeah, I, I think that that can be a uh, a choice a narrative choice that can be hit or miss you know like the office is probably the best example of that being a hit parks and recreation but it, i thought that that actually added a lot to the show and i really enjoyed a lot of their interviews I, thinking back to the orgy episode which is just on my mind for some reason as we're talking about this when they were talking about vampire orgies and framing that for the episode and like what the stakes were for the episode so to speak and how if you have a bad one you know like is talked about for thousands of years and you never get to live it down <laughs> and i really felt like and they were showing like these pictures and that really added to it and i was like this is just a really great way to like add in these little jokes and these little things that add so much to the episodes but um mm-hmm. and it's a simple choice you know it's it's easy to do so i thought that was great overall i thought the show was a really big success and fx I, you know i think they've had some shows come out that haven't been what I want them to be, and I think we'll be talking about that a little bit uh, in the coming weeks with Fosse Verdon, which seems to have been um, not as big as they were hoping it would be. But what we do in the shadows seems to be an absolute hit for them. Absolutely. Yeah. Shout out the uh, werewolf <laughs> episode. thought that was really funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, the animal control one. Just all the Staten Island digs I thought are really funny, if you understand New York City. Um and overall, you know, it's cool that they don't like they show them being vampires pretty frequently, whether that's them flying or hovering around or sucking people's blood. Like they don't skimp on mm-hmm. that, which I think was uh, which is good. You know, they actually they, they do feel like fantastical 
creatures in the normal world, which is, I think, important uh, to make the jokes work. Also, shout out Bean Feldstein, yes. just kind of being a, a, a bit player in the season. I just saw her in Book Smart, and it's definitely uh, uh, he's asked less of in this season. Hopefully, she gets to do more in season two as her profile has risen. But I thought so, even in her limited screen time, she was still pretty Yeah, cool. I really liked the episode where uh, Natasha Dimitrios Nadja was kind of like teaching her how to, how to be a vampire. I thought that episode was fantastic, and she got to really shine. Seduce, man. Uh, and like the, the weird <laughs> bat that she turns into is just like, I, I, I literally like yeah, spit out my water oil. Yeah, as I, was, as I was drinking. It's hilarious. Um, any last thoughts on what we do in the shadows before we move on? Cool. Let's. No, I think it's a definitely worth it and easy to get through so you can catch up late like we did we're not talking a lot of music this week we're saving it for next week but we did want to mention this beast coast album uh, that came out we've been kind of leading up to it and anticipating it for a little bit i think we talked about it on the pod uh, that this was gonna be coming out you know a team up of the underachievers flatbush zombies pro era and they dropped escape from new york this past friday what were your thoughts i, I know that you were highly anticipating this yes yeah i've seen all of these artists live i think i've I've seen joey four times i think so i was a big fan of all of them as their own entities for a long very long time and the beast coast movement has been a thing for a while too but the culmination in terms of a true like group slash collective effort has been much hyped and with a lot riding on i was uh, actually a really big fan of this i uh thought they delivered it didn't there, there were a bunch of things I was worried might happen in terms of it feeling samey or stale or old. But no, I think as all these artists have evolved throughout their careers, you can you see that, you hear that on this album. And I think that was great, great choice. It, it's, it seems like they put a lot of time into making this the way they've put a lot of time into honing their craft. So I was a, I was a big fan. I mean, what did you think as someone who's... Uh, not as hardcore as me. Yeah, I thought this was a very good album. Not not one of the best of the year for me, but I thought it was well made. It flowed really well. I was a little bit surprised that the energy level was not really high the whole time. I guess I was kind of expecting that going in. So then, you know, after the first two or so songs, they hit this stretch from Problems to Snow in the Stadium, which is this very like reggae influenced song. And it's actually very like mellowish, you know, in terms of, of the beat and just the overall feeling in the songs. And I was kind of like, huh, this this is different than what I was, I was expecting, but it's still really well done. And I actually thought the production on this was like some of the best of the year because I felt like even though the songs feel very singular and this is something we talked about with Igor last week, I still feel like they flowed really well. Like particularly in the back half of the album, the transition from distance to bones, it's like one of the smoothest transitions from songs on that I can like really remember when the songs aren't actually just like together. It was really awesome. So some great moments in this. I thought very solid overall and I was pleased. Uh, it seems like you were as well. Yeah, and to do the beats, I mean, I was just actually running the back. Not all the credits are public yet, but Powers Pleasant from Pro Air, the producer, he made a few of them. But actually, Eric, the architect, Eric Argelliot from Flatbush Zombies, made, I think, four of the beats. And he's always been known as like the polymath of Flatbush Zombies, makes the beats and raps well. But it's kind of cool that they... There's, and there's, a, I think, there's another 
producer duo that's on a few of these songs too. I didn't recognize their name. But it's cool that there's a bunch of different producers and that it still sounds really cool because I was expecting it to be like All Powers or something. This album, you know, it's it's hard to make a group album work well because there's just so many voices and they're all they're all unique enough that you know, it can just kind of sound like you're just stringing verses and te- cutting and pasting them together, right? I mean, there's four pro era guys rapping on this. Underachievers is a duo, Flatbush is a trio. That's a lot of people. And I think overall they kind of spread the wealth pretty well. It felt like I think Joey and maybe Nick Caution were probably at the lower end in terms of just less verses, but I never felt like any of the songs were just like, all right, let's add the CJ verse mm-hmm. now to this song. Like nothing ever really wore out its welcome for me, which is, you know, you don't want everything to be six minutes long when you have this many guys. So I think they really, both the production and the sequencing and then just the overall song construction just sounds like they put a lot of time into into making this work and not overdoing anything, which again, is just something that you could, you've, we've seen often with albums with this many people. Yeah, I was involved. wondering, and I have an answer to this, but I was wondering if you felt like one group had more influence or this sounded more like one of the group's albums more than a collective uh definitely flatbush zombies yeah that's what i felt like too that felt like they had more of a influence on what this record actually sounded like than pro era or the underachievers yeah it sounds old it's it's closest in sound to vacation from hell flatbush's album last year which we reviewed which I think is a good thing to model after because that was an album that, and we didn't love it, but it did what Flatbush has been famous for in terms of these dark, cloudy, introspective raps, but also is not opposed to adapting the sound to more modern modern things. And I think Meech, Meech is all over this. We already talked about Eric, uh, his production. Actually, Juice actually surprised me. He does a lot of different hooks on this, and he doesn't immediately sound like himself. And then someone like Kirk Knight, who we also reviewed his last solo album, he has really adapted the past few years into being a bit more of a crossover hip-hop artist. And he kind of fits right into what Flatbush was doing on their last album. So he fits right into a lot of these hooks. I know uh, Coast Clear, I think that was the second single, didn't really do much for me as a single. But once I heard this at the end of the album, I actually really like that song now and Kirk actually really impressed me because I was a bit iffy on him being a crossover artist when we talked about that solo album. We got some hate on that review as a result, <laughs> but I think he's kind of honed that a little bit and it sounds a lot better on this. Uh, but yeah, I mean, obviously I would love more Joey verses. I would love more Issa verses, but I think what we got is still really good. Definitely very good. Any uh, songs that particularly stand out to you? Yeah. So you mentioned that there's a, there's the chill vibe. There's the the third eye vibe that we come to expect from a lot of these guys not as much of the high energy that they initially bust on the scene for right however when you get that high energy it's fucking mm-hmm. great because there's they can still do it like they always have i thought bones yes was fucking epic flatbush zombies isa's uh versus is fucking textbook him a six nine disc on there i love hearing that from new york artists by the way that was, i mean i just wrote in my notes bones holy shit <laughs> I love Nick's verse on Puke. I mentioned Coast Clear. Rubber Band, I thought that hook was really good. Problems in the beginning, really, again, it, it, the chill mm-hmm. vibe presents itself early. 
Left Hand, one of their lead singles. I think that song was still really well done. They performed that on Late Night, and it was cool live. But it, it doesn't, not all these songs, they don't all feel like, oh, this is the posse cut where we got 30 dudes on it, right? Like they, they, It just sounds like like a big group album, and I think that that's hard, easier said than none. Also, shout out the track length, 47 Minutes, mm-hmm. which is a reference to the 47 lifestyle from the pro era come up with capital steez that's a cool little easter egg for the og fans that most people won't pick yeah. up on but yeah i'm a big fan of this i'm gonna run this back a lot are you gonna catch them on tour that's the problem i'm planning to be away when they're here they're playing at an outdoor arena this time around where i actually saw joey once so i want to go i mean i've seen all these guys before but i've never seen them together all at once i feel like it's this is kind of like a moment that won't won't be that easy to see after this year so i i probably should probably should go check out our playlist nostalgia best of 2019 on spotify uh we've already added bones to the playlist so you can uh take take a taste there and then check out the rest of the album if you like it another uh album that i think we both enjoyed but more of a surprise also a visual poem is lonely islands the unauthorized bash brothers experience uh andy sandberg just loves these sports satire comedies what the fuck does visual poem mean? Nothing. <laughs> like when I when I, when I like heard about this because I'm not like a hardcore Lonely Island fan, so I wasn't aware of the teases of this project until they really did it in earnest the past few days. But like visual poem, like like that that means nothing. It's a made up <laughs> thing, right? Well, like and don't 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 tell me this is like lemonade or anything. It's not. It's just ultimately it's visuals for this quick album they made, right but right? that that it's, it's almost like it's it's not quite tour de pharmacy or seven mm-hmm. days in hell as you've been referencing like andy likes these sports things but i was actually surprised that there's like way less plot this time around this is really just like a bunch of music yeah videos. i mean even the uh they, they use the jose canseco mark mcguire in the late 1980s with the Oakland Athletics, the Bash Brothers hitting all these home mm-hmm. runs because they were roided out of their minds at this time, uh, and that's kind of what the the theme of, of the album is around. But even a lot of the songs on here are very loosely connected to that, and I mean that's just like a general. I mean they they have a lot of baseball references, and sometimes are more directly referencing things that actually happened in these people's lives. But like the Haim song or the the one where Sterling K. Brown pops in and uh, Sia for oakland nights like that that, that could just be a lonely island song like it doesn't need to be related to them at all you know i I, for the visual part because there's i think there's the music talk about and then the actual netflix drop uh it definitely was supposed to be a satire on something like lemonade or um janelle monet's you know Mm -hmm. visual album things like that uh because this has been more of a trend recently where artists are putting out these visual albums to accompany an album and really add some artistic perspective or uh, add something to what they're trying to say. And I actually thought that was some of the the stuff I found funniest was like in between songs, like the just nonsense that they were saying and the visuals that went along with it. I was just like, these are, this is some of the most ridiculous shit I've probably seen on TV this year. But I also thought the songs were pretty good. You know, Lonely Island for being uh you know a comedy group uh really can make songs that are still just enjoyable i mean everybody knows like i'm on a boat or i just had sex but i think there's a a bunch off here that are actually kind of bangers what do you think yeah well 
I was impressed with the visuals for it, the visuals. Whether you think there's enough substance there, yeah, look great, and like the production values are very very present, and that does lend itself to the music as well, which sounds good. This is the first time listening to them where I realized they're like shortcomings as rappers because they've always kind of been like joke rappers this whole time more or less um but did seem like they had the same exact flow every time they rapped whether it's on let's bash or any of these other songs and these songs are funny but then when i hear it i'm like wait they're doing Mm -hmm. the same rap pat why do you have to listen to this rap like it's the same pitter patter the whole time and it it started to wear on me at the end but the songs are just super (laughs) funny because they're just ridiculous which is what you expect from them so if that's what you want then you're going to get that and be happy with it. And I still found it very funny. If you're coming to Lonely Island looking for anything else, that's on you. Because, I mean, right. Andy Samberg, he thrives in that lane of just, like, idiotic, ridiculous, stupid comedy. And he's obviously the most well-known one, but Akiva Schaefer, who also was a co-director for this, uh, for the visual at least, I thought it was hilarious playing Mark McGuire, who was, I guess, like a pseudo straight man in part of this. Well, Sandberg got to be like yeah. the ridiculous. I'm Mark. Yeah. <laughs> My name is Jose. I'm Mark. <laughs> Just so many little funny elements. You know, they also had quite a few guest appearances. Um, Haim, yeah. Maya Rudolph, Sterling K. Brown, Sia sang a hook on this. I mean, they got mm-hmm. some big names in this. Yeah, I mean that stands out early. I didn't really like Oakland Nights as a, as a song. Actually, anytime they really used auto tune, I thought it sounded pretty pretty bad. Mm-hmm. But having Sterling K. Brown be Sia and and for the visual, it's just really funny. Yeah, you know, it, it's tough to tough to take that away from them. Yeah, silk robes and kimonos, bro. <laughs> what what do you think of of Haim and and Maya Rudolph on IHOP parking lot? Yeah, that's funny. That's obviously a play on lots of old school movie ideas mm-hmm. right um i think just anytime they're like like sexualizing mark and jose it's it's really good like it's kind of like a follow-up to when they're doing the weight room <laughs> scene where they're lifting the girls yeah. like yeah it, it's funny it's it's you know i was um in for the visual it, it uh it really jumps from song to song pretty quick like i mean the whole album's like 20 something minutes long and the visual is like 30 minutes but the plot, if you could call it one, <laughs> kind of jumps around a lot, but it doesn't really matter because they just throw you into this next song. Usually it's a high energy song, yeah. so it's it's fun. Yeah, definitely. But the cameos are cool, and that kind of speaks to the, the success these guys have had for a very long time. Like Sandberg has a high profile mm-hmm. right now from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and obviously he was already well very well known from SNL. So uh, these guys have some pull, and I'm sure Netflix was happy to add this to the, the content mine. They're just like, oh, you want to make something weird? That we can pseudo promote midweek, yeah, fuck it, why not? Like, it, it was a it's low stakes for everyone. Exactly, and it, I thought it was a, a pleasant, uh, delightful surprise drop. Uh, probably my favorite surprise of 2019 to this <laughs> point. I, we haven't had too too many of them. Yeah, what else is there? Uh, not, I'm trying to think if there's been any like surprise album drops. Not none that I can think of, but something that definitely was not a surprise that we've been anticipating for a while has been Aladdin. 20, Aladdin 2019, I guess we'll, we'll call it. Will Smith's Aladdin, however you want to refer to it. But the Guy Ritchie helmed uh, live-action remake of the, what, 1992? 92. Mm-hmm. Damn. Animated movie starring 
Menem Musad as Aladdin, Naomi Scott as Jasmine, obviously we got Will Smith as the genie, Marwin Kamari as Jafar, uh, and Nassim. Come on, pronounce these right. Kenzari, bro. Can you read? Oh, I, I sorry. I just, I, it's just my terrible handwriting more than anything. <laughs> and uh, how do you say Nassim's last name? I, I don't want to butcher it. Padrad. Padrad. Okay. SNL alum. Yeah, I, I don't really recall her from SNL, which is probably yeah, she's a sporting player. I uh, just wasn't too, super tuned in at that time. Uh, playing Dahlia, the handmaid to Jasmine. Yeah, I, I guess why don't we just start with general <laughs> thoughts? How did you feel about Aladdin overall? I liked it a lot more than I expected to. I know. Uh, I think for most people, they had lowered expectations given the mixed reception to the trailer. And this an overall apathy to live action Disney remakes because they don't they tr- haven't really added anything to what they're adapting. They're just kind of there to be seen, make some make some dough for Disney and and entertain kids. Like there's there's a they don't set out to achieve much as films, so most people are never super hyped about them. But I was I was I was pleased. You know, I think it's completely inoffensive to any hardcore. OG Aladdin fans and the changes it makes I don't think they really add anything like as saying like, it doesn't rise above the original but it's still a lot of fun I think most of the casting is, is done well so it's it's, a, it's just enjoyable you know movie ultimately it's geared for kids but I think it looks pretty good I was concerned if this the CGI might stand out be a little stark given they didn't shoot this whole thing in, in desert after all but I think it looks good. It's a fun ride. It's a little long, I guess. That was probably my biggest quibble with. I think it takes a while to start hmm. uh, and like pick up. But yeah, I, I was entertained. What about you? You know, when the uh, when the first like pictures of the genie came out um, and we first saw the CGI for the genie, there was a lot of backlash. People were really concerned about this film. But the more and more we saw updated trailers, updated clips, it seemed like they were kind of pulling it together. And I think overall they did pull it together. I really enjoyed it. I had a good time uh, at this movie. I don't remember a lot of the plot points of the original Aladdin. I know like the general story and kind of like how they get from point A to point B, but I I didn't recall Jasmine being as like girl power, so to speak, or, or women empowerment as uh, she was in this film, which was actually kind of like a nice a nice addition. I felt like, although I do think the the speechless song was a bit like shoehorned in and felt a little out of place. But overall, I thought Will Smith for having an impossible task of, you know, playing an iconic role that Robin Williams personified to a T. He did a good job and he brought a lot of energy. That's really what you needed from the genie. And he definitely, I think, carries this film. But Musad is fine as Aladdin. I thought Naomi Scott as Jasmine was fantastic. Kim Zari, I was a little bit eh on. Like, he was fine, but... You know, to be the the big villain in this, I think at times he wasn't as intimidating or, I don't know, scary enough, maybe is the right word. But overall, I thought it was a fine film and probably the best live action remake Disney's done to this point. Um, my, my biggest quibble mm. would actually be the singing. I think a lot of times was either like not the right pitch or just flat um, and... I found that a bit just like off-putting it was like, you know, you're putting all this energy into getting the CGI right into making the genie have all these elaborate tricks and you aren't singing <laughs> that well in this. And 
Uh, I thought that was a bit frustrating. But overall, had a good time at this film, and uh, I, I liked it. Yeah, I think I think there's a few things there. What do you think? This is, do you think this is the best live action remake? You have this above Beauty and the Beast 2017 and Jungle Book 2016. Yeah, uh, maybe not above Jungle Book. It's right up there. It's definitely above Beauty and the Beast for me. I think that's probably preference to the story. Um, was never a huge Beauty and the Beast right. fan, but also I I thought the live action in this, like I thought the magic carpet, which could have been a disaster, was awesome. I thought that came out great. Right, sure. um, I think a lot of the live action elements of this were really, really well done. Um, and I I actually felt like the genie, which I thought was going to be incredibly scaled down because of just how much you can do with an animated film. You just can't do with live action. I still think they did a lot with it. And I was really happy with it. Right. You So you would have those two above it, though. Yeah, I, I really like Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm. I like. I think it, it, it actually makes the original better because the original is super, super short. I think that added more to the plot and helped to uh, explain uh, Belle's turn, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not straight Stockholm Syndrome like it is <laughs> in the cartoon. Anyway, um, these remakes should change things, right? Like I don't want it to be a straight carbon copy, right? Like there's, what's the point of that? And this does change things. You mentioned the genie, I think. Having Will Smith not always be blue, great yeah. choice. Frank, and you mentioned, I think he does carry the film, and I think it starts out a little slow, partially because the the first song, really, the Street Rat song, it's fine, but I think uh, Masood's singing is he only can do so much, yeah. so they they have to scale it down as a result. But once the genie shows up uh, and meets Aladdin. Then it picks mm-hmm. up. It gets way more funny, way more frenetic, and it's just a lot, a lot of fun. And basically, whenever Will Smith's on screen, he's Electric. like just having a ball. It's great. It's one of his best roles in a long time, to be honest. Kanzari as Jafar was probably my biggest weak point, relatively speaking. I just kind of wanted Jafar to be more of a sinister mm. character. Good word. But because he he just comes off as a much younger Jafar this time around, which is fine, but. I don't know. Like it, it was tough to buy that he was an advisor to the mm-hmm. Sultan, who's like much older than him. And I like that. Like they like kind of like add to Jafar being like like Aladdin and coming up from nothing and then stealing the lamp later on. Like I believe that's all different from the cartoon. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but he just wasn't quite as menacing as I wanted him to be. But it's still effective. It wasn't it wasn't a weak point per se. Just kind of something I would have changed. Yeah, I mean the thing about the singing though is like you have to decide if you want to cast someone who's a good singer or a good actor. And I think when you're making these live action remakes, you have to prioritize the mm-hmm. acting. And I really liked Masood as Aladdin. I thought he was really good at conveying uh, what makes Aladdin. You know, this street smart kid who is a good, well intentioned mm-hmm. guy. But they they had him as he you know becomes falls in love with the Prince Ali idea, like in the cartoon, having that turn of sorts happen, I think was communicated well. I thought he did a good job. If he's not the best singer, though, I think I think it just you just have to have to roll with it. Like, like the Mulan remake for next year, there's not they're not even doing any songs. They're just mm-hmm. throwing that out. But the thing that you think is is a inspired choice. Just really focus on the storytelling. Um, now you know me, Scott as Jasmine. Jasmine's Jasmine's kind of like. A, a weak Disney princess, as far as really? characters go, like she doesn't do a whole lot oh, in, the in the cartoon. cartoon yeah. yeah, in the cartoon, she's just kind of there to be saved by Aladdin. 
Um, she does not have a whole lot. So I think they're actually mm-hmm. adding the like her desire to yeah. be Sultan and just kind of giving her more to her person was 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 a good idea. I think like Jafar being like kind of blatantly sexist, like you can't be a Sultan and shut up woman, like all these like it's a, it's a little mm-hmm. obvious like the messaging there, but I don't know, like having Naomi Scott have that brand new Jasmine song at the end, which is not an original, uh, works well. And like she, um, I thought she sang pretty well. And uh, you mentioned the the magic carpet, um, uh, what's yeah. called a whole new world. Obviously, the most famous song from the cartoon that really needs to be a hit because that's not a scene mm-hmm. you can change. Uh, and I thought that worked well, and it looked good. You know, I, I was definitely uh, concerned that the CGI would be poor, but. They um, both acquit themselves while singing that song, and it, and it looks good. So, like I said, I think overall it's it's inoffensive, but a good time. Yeah, I felt uh, a whole to speak on a whole new world. Uh, I felt like that was a well done scene and very effective. However, I also felt like that highlighted the uh, difference in singing ability between Scott and Musad probably the most throughout the film because you have uh, Musad who's like you know carries the first half of the song and then jasmine comes in and naomi scott just like blows him away vocally it's it's crazy how much better she seemed to be in the film at least um what did you think of the dancing that was included in here because i've seen some mixed reactions online to people feeling like god did that needed to be added in or not which which part like i i like the the prince ali Mm -hmm. entrance with the elephants and the dancers i thought and, and the song i thought that was as yes. extravagant as it should be. I thought that was awesome. It was really fun energy. Will Smith <laughs> yep. killing it. That looked great. But wait, is that the dancing they're referring to? Uh, referring the to the dancing when he's trying to like woo Jasmine as Prince Ali. Oh, the ba- backflip yeah. a little much, right? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I didn't, I didn't mind. It was kind of cool seeing Will Smith go like all like yeah. marionette on Aladdin. Whatever. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't a big thing for me. I actually felt like I really enjoyed the dancing and like at the the po- post credits or like the credit scene where they're doing a bit of like a Bollywood type um, like breakdown, I thought was actually kind of fun. I'd like to see yeah. them do um, like more of that sort of stuff um, to kind of give a shout out to these cultural re- regions um, as they make these live uh, live action films and adaptations one i mean alan tudyk is credited as i think playing iago in this and iago in the animated film is like a whole comedic actor in and of his own right and this was a very scaled down iago role yeah. how did you feel about that choice yeah it's not it's definitely not yeah. gilbert gottfried right scaled down is exactly the way to put it he just doesn't really add much he just kind of like I guess he's there for the kids watching to communicate in broad strokes what characters are thinking or what action is happening on screen. Like he does not have any good lines. And at the end, he briefly becomes like this mutant pterodactyl Mm -hmm. ass parrot, right? (laughs) Shout out Disney. Always need to have some kind of chase scene at the end (laughs) with CGI. Thankfully it doesn't last too long, but definitely made me raise my (laughs) eyebrow when I, when I I watched it unfold. Yeah. He, uh, yeah, doesn't doesn't add anything, unfortunately. But I thought yes. uh, Abu, despite being a looks like a real monkey, uh, mm-hmm. both funny. I think right away they uh, the dynamic with Aladdin is conveyed well, and the first real plot point that Abu pushes when he falls in love with the red jewel in the cave uh, would look good and worked well. So I think Abu was much better 
And Olami is more important character than Iago. Mm-hmm. Iago is kind of like supplementary. But yeah, a uh, bit of a disappointment that both Iago and Jafar, to a lesser extent, are a bit of weak points considering they are pretty important to the storytelling. Yeah, it just feels like a waste of Alan Tudyk, honestly. Cause he's such a, a great actor. You know, he's been awesome as, uh, you know, in all the Star Wars films he's been doing. And just like K2. Yeah, K2, he's been great. So, yeah, I don't know. I think the last thing I just wanted to say was I was really impressed with Mossad and Scott in this because when you're on screen with someone like Will Smith, and he's so so established and bringing so much energy i think it could have been really easy for them to kind of like shrink away in in that face i felt like they really like held their own in the scenes with him and they i I thought especially him and Masad had a really good chemistry that shone through and and was a good driver of the movie for the second half especially as you know kind of the the conflict starts to arise more so right I, i just thought that was impressive if we remember back um when they when they announced this, Naomi Scott was cast as Jasmine first, and that was something we were actually both happy about. She had kind of bust on the scene with the Power Rangers remake, but it's kind of been pegged as a up and coming star for a while. But they took them a while to find their Aladdin, and arguably that's a more important casting choice to nail. And I, I, again, I was really impressed with them finding Masood. You know, that was a he he was good, and he was certainly not a well known guy before. I think they they auditioned tons of people, and he won out and. That was great. Did you recognize who played the Sultan, by the way? No. That's uh, Navid Nigaban, who we know as Farouk ah, from Legion. Damn. I would yep. not have ever uh, noticed that. That's that's awesome, though. You know, I, I think basically to wrap, to summarize it, uh, Aladdin, though not a not a perfect film, does enough to be enjoyable, and it's worth a watch. Especially much better than Dumbo. Yeah, it do, I mean, I didn't see it, but I would, I would believe that. And you can watch this for seven, what, seven dollars a month, starting November twelfth uh, on Disney Plus. So probably, probably one of the first. That's right. Um, twenty nineteen films put on there. And uh, while we're here, what's your energy on the next remakes? We have obviously Lion King, which I'm sure everyone saw a trailer for when they saw mm-hmm. Aladdin. That comes out in July. And then also probably lesser known to most people, Lady and the Tramp, day and date on Disney Plus, November twelfth. Justin Theroux and Tessa Thompson. Those are the two we have this year. And then in March we have Mulan, which just finished filming. Lady and the Tramp, my hype is at basically a zero, <laughs> and Lion King, my <laughs> hype is at like an eighty right now. I have a hundred. I'm I'm excited for it. I'm not like over the moon, but this this didn't do anything to hurt it. I'll put it that way. What about you? I'm really hyped for Mulan. One of my favorite Disney Renaissance movies, but I mentioned it's not being a musical, but the lead actress mentioned that it's like the most expensive Disney movie ever. It's like $300 million. And if you think about Mulan, it's truly an epic story. And just thinking that Disney's like really putting out to make this look as fucking badass as you expect it to be is fucking really exciting. So I'm looking forward to that. That movie will make a man out of you, Dave. And uh, (laughs) we're on to next week, dude. So what are we talking about next week? Yeah, so... As you mentioned, there's a lot of music we didn't talk about this week that we'll get to. YG, Steve Lacey, Flying Lotus, Lotus, as well as records coming out on Friday, Denzel Curry and Skepta. All artists we don't want to miss and they're worth talking about, so we'll get to them. Also, we'll catch up on the Killing Eve Season 2 finale, the full season, Fosse Virgin, as you mentioned. Also, uh, Chernobyl, we haven't talked about that at all. Quick five-episode series on HBO. And of course, Booksmart, which I've already seen. I believe you've already seen it too. We haven't talked about it yet. Really excited to talk about that. As well as Godzilla, King of Monsters, and Rocket Man. 
hell of stuff, but that's summer for you, man. Lots of stuff to talk about. Yeah, so hit that subscribe button. If you're watching on YouTube, go to soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod to find all the ways that you can listen to the podcast. And lastly, give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. We appreciate all, all the love. We appreciate all the support. We'll see you next week. Yeah.